phone and then turning on the megaphone option. Excellent. Will be great. I can hear you loud and clear. Perfect. All right. This is uh, pretty fancy stuff here. Thank you. All right. Now I've got to figure out how I can turn around so I'm not facing myself. Or I guess... Uh, uh, your arrows, Brian. Just pick. Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna, there we go. When I... There we go. All right. Um, thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much for for having me um, here. This is um, really uh, a, a kind of a special opportunity to, to to speak to you all. And I know you've got. I mean, you're saying you've got um, some folks here who uh, who have served, and some Ukrainians, and other folks that are. Um, are kind of are called to this this very important effort. Um, you know, I, I think it's. Um, I have often wondered what would it have been like to live during the run up to World War II, where you saw what was very clear injustice happening and the the serenity of of countries being sacrificed and basically on the world stage um and how could the world have set so idly by for for so long and i feel with what we're seeing in ukraine we can see how that that happened i mean what what's happening in ukraine is so galling at, at so many different levels um it's so brazen it's so shocking um and I, I think that you've got uh, it's, it's such an atrocity. There's such literal war crimes being being committed, and I think it, you know it speaks very highly of um, everyone here that people really are trying to find how how can I help? How can I get beyond just kind of uh, doom scrolling and and being horrified? And how can I be driven to to action? What, what are the things that that I can go do? Um, and, you know, that's I, I, I've always felt that, you know, we, we've got a bunch of veterans who work at, at Oxide. Um, and I, I think that part of the reason that, that they're drawn to work w with with us and, and I'm drawn to work with them um, is because of the, this call to something larger than themselves and to do something that um, isn't merely self-serving or self-advancing um, and to actually serve others. Uh, and I think, you know, that's. Um, yeah, right. You're doom scrolling. I feel like I've been doing a lot of doom scrolling. <laughs> I've been doing doom scrolling for like the last five years between the, between so much. Um, and I, I, but I think that the, the, you know, the, the kind of the magnitude of horror that we're seeing is really something we really, we have not seen. Um, and I just am, am so impressed with, with all of you who are, are taking the time to, uh, work together, do something positive, uh, create something to uh, help the struggle for freedom and serenity and democracy um, in in Ukraine, which is a, a country that is now going through unspeakable horrors. I think it's also important that you know, you know the uh, this will end. I believe. I, I think that you uh, Ukraine can't be conquered. Um, I believe, and I believe that Ukraine will, will, will triumph with respect to its serenity. But I think that there's going to be an extremely long process of, of rebuilding Ukraine. So I think that all of us need to um, 
focus on Ukraine long after it's probably drifted from the headlines, hopefully drifted from the headlines, um, because it is it's so important um, that, that it's important for all of us that Ukraine is able to, to win in this very important fight for, for its, its freedom and sovereignty. So, Jamil, I'm not sure how long you got, you got me on the stage here. I don't want to take up any of, you know, too much of your, of your very valuable time. Um, I, I just, again, uh, so impressed with, with all of you, um, for, for taking on this, this very, very important, um, struggle and for finding ways that you can help. Cause I think, again, that's the, 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 the challenge that, that we have is it, it's very easy to kind of, uh, feel upset about the challenges in the world, and it is—it's much more difficult to find the ways that you can be the constructive difference that you want to be, serve a cause larger than yourself. That is the actual challenge, and I really admire the fact that that all of you are here doing that now. And um, hopefully, you have some get some excitement working together. I love hackathons because they're so you know. It, you get to leave everything else at the door and, and really focus on being creative and productive and, and forward looking and to serve this terrific cause on top of it. It's just really, really admirable. So thank you so thank much. You, Brian. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I believe our judge, uh, Vlad, he, who is, uh, from, uh, Kiev in Ukraine, I believe he has one or two questions. Yeah. Um, and while he's getting that ready, um, people can also use the chat here. We'll use the next 30 seconds to use the chat to see if uh, if anyone else has any questions here. Um, yeah, Vlad, are you set with your questions? Yeah, I, I guess I could kind of have an existential question. So I, I, we're like software engineers and we're making programs and we kind of run them in production and they get stuck, we get stack traces, we fix them, we restart. And now like we suddenly like it's all, you know, our skills are kind of diminished in value. We need to build like operating systems for weapons or something. <laughs> and we kind of keep, what, what is a good way to keep resolve, you know, in finding what needs to be done today? You know, as a software guy, it's hard to refocus. Yeah, in terms of what needs to be done, the, the and if I just want to understand the question in terms of like, what do we need to do to make robust software? Yeah, and, and today. Yeah, well, I think that you know, there was. Um, it's very easy to kind of despair about the state of software. And maybe, uh, DJ, I can kind of answer your question. And I probably should have given you a little bit of an intro about, about kind of who I am or, or my perspective. So, um, I, um, I've been a software engineer for my entire, my entire career for 25 plus years. And as Vlad is kind of alluding to, um, much of my career has been spent trying to understand why software is misbehaving. And uh, why software is operating across purposes. I developed a, a facility called DTrace that allows us to dynamically instrument production systems and allowed us to put a really strong spotlight on software systems and dis discovered a bunch of things that were doing the wrong thing or doing surprising things. Um, and uh, since then, I've, I'm the CTO of a computer company, Oxide Computer Company, where we are uh, developing a new rack scale machine and very much focused on that robust foundation. 
and about, I guess that was a way of, of answering your question. Um, the, um, I, I, I do think that there are some exciting developments that are leading to a more robust foundation. I, I, it's no secret that I'm very bullish on Rust. Um, I think that Rust is an extremely important development. Uh, it is the most important development in computing systems since the development of C. Um, it is, it's that much of a leap forward. And I, I think just looking at our, our systems that we have developed in Rust, um, we are able to, to make much more robust artifacts. Um, so I'm, it, Rust is not the only example. I mean, I think Zig is really interesting. There are a bunch of interesting programming uh, languages. And I would like to believe that we are getting past this era of blathering out infrastructure software, for lack of a better word, where we were building this kind of towering stack and everyone is not really understanding the abstractions beneath them and just building the tower higher and higher and higher. And I think we are now in a mode where we are revisiting a bunch of that and and making the stack, I think, much leaner, much more robust. So I think there's a lot of reason for optimism. Um, the uh, and another good a good question in terms of of tips for leading big software teams. Um, this is something that you that I you know you might all appreciate it. The the, the folks here will appreciate. I actually think that the the single most important thing you can do in leading a team is to be very clear about what you want the values of that team to be. And uh, certainly at, at Oxide, we have been, if you're all familiar with the company, you know that we have been uh, very emphatic about the, the, the values that we have as a company. And we differentiate between values and principles. Principles are those things that are universal um, and Indeed, I think many of us would argue that serenity, freedom, these are these are universal principles. That's part of what you're here um, to, to work on during this hackathon, but you're here kind of defending those principles. So our principles, we have a small group of principles that we expect for everyone to abide by, and then a larger set of values that are intention, that are not are not uh, binary. And I think at leading any team, but especially a software team, it's very important to be ex- explicit about what those values are because they allow people to make decisions on their own. Um, you can trust people to make decisions when you've been very clear about what those values are. And that's a little abstract, but we have found that to be, um, to be essential. And there's a presentation that I, I, I'm sure it's walking link to, or I, I can drop a link to that I gave on, um, Amazon has these 14 leadership principles that kind of troll me. And so I have a, a, a talk about my, maybe some of the things that I like about those, but then a lot of things I don't like about those and why it is actually important to have very clear uh, principles and values in an organization. That is the, but that's the single most important thing I would recommend doing. I had a question to go yeah. up on the tangent with that. Um, so you're doing like an operating system software for in Rust now, but like ten years ago you were doing system software in JavaScript. Could you <laughs> could you reflect like on, on on that and how like your values changed like in those past ten years? Yeah, was, that, like I guess for context, like the the you, you had a Unix operating system software with a lot of um, tooling written in JavaScript, like in Node, because your company owned Node and. It's a year pioneer like doing this. 
right? And then you're gonna feel, and then you move back to like safer languages and more down to harder level stuff. Yeah, no, that's this is very true, and I would say that it is my experience failing in that that really catalyzed my own views on the importance of values because I assumed that everyone shared my values, and I was excited about Node um, for system software because there were things about JavaScript that I thought were really interesting and powerful, and. What I learned is that actually the values that I have aren't necessarily the same values that others have for all levels of the software stack. And in particular, I wanted more. I assumed that that because Node was effectively server-side JavaScript, that it would become much more rigorous over time. And it really didn't, actually. Um, I mean, it ultimately did, but we call that TypeScript, right? TypeScript is very much... Um, and I mean, kudos to Microsoft for TypeScript, a very important, uh, th- development. But, um, I think that that whole experience, again, it's a very good question because that whole experience didn't go well. It, um, it also highlighted for me that a very large community of software developers can be detrimental, that you can have people think like, if I've got a large community, this is great. There's a huge community of people. It's like, well, maybe. But not if that community doesn't agree. Um, and the JavaScript community was all over the map. And in particular, the values that we had as a company around rigor, robustness, debuggability, observability, uh, to a lesser degree performance, security, were not really shared. Um, and that led to a, a divorce. Um, and I actually I was asked to give a talk at Node Summit in 2017 long after this kind of divorce had taken place and we were kind of had a bit of an existential crisis of figuring out what it was going to be, what would the, what were we going to program in if not node and not C. And um, I was asked to give this keynote and I'm like, no way, I'm not going to give a keynote. I've got nothing nice to say. And the organi- organizer of the conference is like, oh, no, 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 we definitely want you to give a keynote if you have nothing nice to say. It's like, oh, brother. So it actually was very helpful because it forced me to kind of think about what happened and process what happened and try to say it in a way that was uh, not, you know, not impolite, but also direct and candid and forthright. Um, and so that is this, uh, the software, uh, so the software platform is a reflection of values, is I think what I called it. Um, but um, I, again, kind of the same theme of being explicit about who you are and what's important to you is a really important way of finding others that agree with you, that share your values, finding software platforms that share your values, finding organizations that share your values. So I I know it may sound like a a bit like a broken record, but it's only because I've learned this the very, very hard way. Don't assume that other people share your values necessarily. And that's not wrong. I mean, you should assume that people share your principles. You should assume that people are going to be honest and they're going to have integrity. You should, you should, I think, default to. I mean, we have to default to trusting one another at some level. But I, you should not assume that people share your values, and you should not assume that they're going to make the same decisions that you make. And you should find people who, in platforms and software technologies and so on, that explicitly share those values. So, Vlad, I'm not sure how much of that, how uh, how good an answer that is, but at least it's an honest one. Well, I I I started thinking that like in in, in Rothkeeper. My kind of ex- 
implicitly force people into getting an idea of what your values are by specifying that those by restricting the type of programs that people can write. Is that something that you do with the language? Well, like, yeah, I mean, I do think there is, I know that's a good point. And I think that like, I mean, Rust does force you to like, there's only it, the Rust compiler is uh, going to force a certain level of adherence to Rust values um, and things around safety and so on. Um, Rust has got very strong feelings about, it. and yeah, I think you can enforce that with a system in a language, and then uh, you allow people to opt in to those values, and I think it leads to a much stronger community. Uh, What's that? What about like inside the team? Like, is there something you could say using construct in the language to kind of? Uh, maybe uh, narrow down like what the features that Rust has to what your values are within the team? Well, so I'll tell you what, the, the, something that I think is is just I can't go, I can't go back from, I can't not have anymore, is the, the idea of some types, of algebraic types for yeah. error handling. So an algebraic type, the sum type, is like... It, it, you can think of it as like a union in C or C++ if you know um, if you know those languages, or certainly like an enum in Rust. But it's a type that can be a this type or a that type or this other type. It can be one of these number of types. And the reason that's so powerful is because it allows functions to have to pass back a when you combine that with with generic types, I can actually pass back a result. That is either an okay type that is parameterized by a type T, or it's an error type that's parameterized by another type E. So what you have is it is an error or it's okay. And that means that is a really powerful idea because it forces everybody that, that consumes that function has to be able to handle the error. You can't, it, it, it is, it becomes much harder. You can't just ignore it. You have to do something with it. You can't get to that result um, without actually unwrapping it. So th that to me has been as a concrete example of something that I am, uh, that I won't go back from, that I really, really, really like um, and leads to a much more robust software. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and then, um, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, these are good questions about like <laughs> coming in. Yeah, so I so the um so starting a marine coders program I think is a is a great idea. Um, the um I, you know I think actually really, uh, one of my colleagues who's a, who's a veteran a veteran a, a marine himself served in Afghanistan and is now at Oxide Dead Cross. Um, I, I think who often. It, you know, he lives between these worlds of software engineering, but understanding the Marine Corps. Um, I think it's really helpful to have folks like that who really understand all of the the, the terrific value and and values that 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 folks have observed, and then understanding like how to kind of map that on to the the the, the software ecosystem. Um, so I really think it's helpful to have folks that that really understand both of these worlds. And then the other thing that I would just, it, you know, I always encourage everyone is that 
software seems inscrutable because we design these layers of abstraction to function. And we, we, we want to make sure that you can like boot a computer without having to understand an operating system or run an operating system without having to understand a microprocessor um, or run a microprocessor without having to understand the firmware. Like we want to have these layers of abstraction be pretty sealed, but they can be really intimidating as a result. And I think just encouraging people, especially if, if you've got folks who are new to software, um, you really need to get over that intimidation factor and uh, know that, hey, this is all knowable. You can learn about all this stuff. Um, it's either it's either documented or you've got source code and you can actually understand how all this stuff works, which to me is very empowering. It's very empowering to know that this is all these systems are all synthetic. There's there's nothing these are not biological systems. We're not trying to we're not doing science here. We are actually understanding uh, human-built artifacts. And to me, it's exciting that we can learn how all of this stuff works. Um, but it, it definitely takes a lot of work to do that, but it's all doable. And I think that, you know, you can appeal to um, that that terrific uh, work ethic and drive that you see in the service to encourage people to understand the way these information systems work. On modern software solutions within the government, um, I think it's, you know, I think there are lots of people that, um, I mean, I would say you don't shy away from complexity. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that the, this, um, the, the, uh, these systems are complicated and, um, you can understand them. I think in terms of the, how to modernize these software systems, I think you've got to come in with some reverence for them. Um, I mean, it's very easy to deride these systems, um, it, like these horrifically legacy systems. There's a reason they're legacy systems. They're legacy systems because these were some of the first things that we automated. When we invented the computer, you know, what are the, the, the very first things we did were things like the census, taxes, um, it, 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 flight scheduling you know, radar. These are some of the earliest uses of computers um, because they, it's impossible to effectively do these things by hand. So you have to understand these systems have been around for a long time because they're important. And But that said, they often do need to be modernized. And how can you modernize them without discarding the elements of the problem that they solve that are important? So I'm going to give you a really concrete example of this. Um, I worked with, uh, when I was, I was at Sun for 14 years, Sun Microsystems computer company. Um, and one of our customers was, um, was Lockheed, um, which was the old IBM federal systems division. Uh, and they were developing air traffic control, developing an air traffic control system. And somewhat infamously, when they went to modernize the, there were many failed attempts to modernize the air traffic control system in part because they weren't really listening to controllers. And the like one of the things that controllers, it's very important to air traffic controllers, is the ability to have the a, a physical artifact that denotes the state of, of, of a plane. And when they hand off an aircraft, they wanted to physically hand off this artifact. Why is that? Because they wanted to have a system in case they lost power, in case they lost their computing systems. And it, it, the, 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 right, exactly. And the, I, I do think that you 
can't so well it's like oh well that's antiquarian and like no like we should no forget that like we've got this way of automating that and it's like well hold on what is that controller telling you um what is the, the what they're telling you is that uh for me, the safety of the system is extremely important to me. The robustness of the system is extremely important to me. And are there ways to square it? And they ultimately, when they, they succeeded, when they found a way of having these physical artifacts that themselves reflected the automation and the physical artifact um, was a, they, they kind of had, would have these, these tokens effectively that would denote aircraft. And they were able to kind of square it by um, by satisfying the controllers while also being much more modern. And I think that the, that's what we have to, in a lot of these uh, government systems, but large systems, you see the same thing in healthcare. Um, my, my father's a physician and has seen any number of people attempt to Im- improve the healthcare system with better automation. And then people complain that like, oh my God, like, you know, they're so antiquated in the healthcare system. And it's like, well, Yes and no, because if you have a technology that affects patient outcomes, the embrace of that technology is very swift. Ultrasound, NMR, CT, these things were embraced very quickly, actually. Um, so it's more complicated than that. And I think, that James, just what you're saying, I think you've got to find a way to listen, but then also lead into the future. And you have to know, like, are you wanting to do it this way because that's always the way you've done it and you can't envision a better way of doing it? Or is there some wisdom in this that I need to listen to? And can I can I show you that I'm listening to the wisdom that you have about the system and show you a better way to do it? And it's I mean if that has to be said, like that's hard. That's super super hard to do, and um, it can be also frustrating because these are slow moving systems and everything else. But I'm not sure if that's helpful or not. But. Um, so uh, mid-level back-end developer looking to get a job working in Rust. Um, I think the, the A number one most important thing is to, uh, is to learn Rust and uh, start playing around with it and get involved in an open source community that reflects something that you like. Uh, I mean, you're here, you're at a hackathon. You are all taking time, maybe time away from your job or you're taking, you are choosing to be here because uh, you enjoy this. And you should find some domain that you enjoy and contribute to it and, and, you know, find other people that are, that, that kind of share your values. I, in terms of learning Rust. So one thing I would say, and this is used to be true way back in the day. So way back in the day, because I'm a fossil and I predate the internet, uh, if you are of my vintage, the way you learned a programming language is well, you like you read an article in Enter Magazine or Byte Magazine, and then you bought a book on it, and you read the book. And you often you couldn't download the compiler; you had to buy the compiler. Um, and then with the internet, obviously, that all changed, and we ended up with these languages where people just try to kind of Google their way into mastery. They kind of search the internet in, in, into mastery, and with a language like Go or Python, you can get away with that. And, uh, <laughs> if, if GitHub Copilot is effective in this language, you can get away with it. Rust, that's not going to work as well. In Rust, you really want to sit down and learn it from, from first principles. And I recommend there's a, there's a book, Programming Rust, um, the O'Reilly book that I would recommend. But 
part of what I like about that book, and I'm, I, I should also the, the, the Rust Programming Language is is also a great book. It's the the author works at Oxide, Steve Kravnik. So I should plug his book too. But the the reason I like the Programming Rust book is it actually starts with a program that you sit and enter. Um, you which feels very old school to me, where you're like looking at this program listing in a book and kind of entering it in and trying to run it, and then when it fails, trying to figure out why it failed. To me, that was a very good way of learning Rust, um, and uh, and then for kind of proceeding through this narrative, walking you through the things that Rust has done. I think it was a great way to learn Rust, and I'd recommend that. Um, but I think you do want to sit down and learn it from a book. In terms of getting involved in new in open source projects, I think it's like what are the things that you like to use? You know, what are the things that are, are whether they're fun or interesting or what have you? Um, you know, as you're using things. You know, look at the repo behind it and, you know, what are the open issues? You know, what are the things that, how can you get involved? The great thing about open source is it's all there. It's all out there. The discussions are all out there. The people are out there, you know, often hanging out in, you know, a discord or a Slack or what have you, um, where you can, um, you learn, uh, how you can, can contribute. But you're going to do it first by, by using something, finding something that's exciting to you using it, and then getting involved. Hope I got every question there, or most of them. Um, yeah, that all, there just seems to be a couple more here in the chat. Let's see here. By Leah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was in terms of like, that's how I recommend getting involved in, in open source projects is by using them and uh, checking out the GitHub or the GitLab or wherever the discussion is happening, hopping into um, wherever the discussion is happening and, you know, mess around, play around, uh, try to extend things, try to do interesting things, try to do do some things that, that are exciting to you personally and see where it goes. Awesome, Brian. I think those are all the questions um, uh, here. I appreciate your time. And um, yeah, thanks again. I appreciate you coming in. Yeah, you bet. Thank you so much for, for having me. And again, um, really, I, I, I just, I'm, I think so highly of all of you and the time you're spending on this. This is, this is very, very important and good on you for for taking positive action um, and, and helping out on this, this very, very important struggle in Ukraine. Awesome. And, and when can we expect your next uh, uh, Troop One um, Scout video to come out? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so the, what you also make reference to is the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm also the, the Scoutmaster for the kids' Scout Troop. We were uh, under COVID. I was doing my Scoutmaster minutes online. Yeah, those have all been in person now. We're, we're, we're back to meeting in person. I, you know, I had no idea that people are, I've got I'm amazed that you found those. Uh, the, oh, you know, actually a couple of my coworkers are saying like, hey, I actually kind of like those. Like, <laughs> so yeah, maybe I should have them. Um, I do actually pride myself on, you know, I, I've got pretty good scout master minutes with the scouts. I do, it is the thing that I actually like the most about, about, I, I, I really enjoy, my kids are all in scouts, but I enjoy being with adolescents as they themselves are trying to figure out what they're about. So, um, it's, it's fun. Other people's teenagers are great. Your own teenagers are, of course, are just, are just hell on earth, but other people's teenagers are really, really impressive.
Um, and after a great question about getting the scouts involved in hack hunts, you know, I'll tell you, we had the scouts by, I was suggesting, they're trying to figure out, you know, a meeting idea. I'm like, I mean, if you wanted to, we could have the, the scouts by oxide. And so I had no idea how, I'm like, how many of these kids are going to show up? But we had an absolutely packed house. Um, it was a lot of fun. And I think it showed um, how, uh, you know, that there's a really uh, grassroots level of enthusiasm for technology and for understanding how this stuff works. It's really, really neat. So, yeah, it's been fun. Awesome, Brian. It's been a towering sense of honor. Um, and we'll uh, we'll keep in touch online. Awesome. Thank you so much. Good luck on the hackathon, everybody. Thank you so much. All right. Yeah, Brian can just uh, just close out the t browser tab <laughs> here. Um, cool. Yeah, uh, that was an awesome talk there. Hope that was imprinted in people's minds and people's machines. Um,